You're listening. No. You're listening to the Buns.com Podcast Network. (laughs) (laughs) Buns, buns, buns. What's what's our higher calling? I'm like, I looked up to my grandfather so much for what he did. And so I just said, you know what? I think climate change really is our generation's World War II, you know? And we've got to find a way of solving this. And I want to be uh, one of the solutions and not someone that just kind of wrote it out and, and was sitting on the sideline. Hey Joe's Nation, Stephen here and welcome to episode 15 of Sustainable Joe's 2084. The best place for business and sustainability talk out there. Now before we get this episode going, I have to say I am so excited about our Good Card Co. Alexander, my business partner, and I were at an eco market this past weekend and I was absolutely fascinated to see how people responded to sustainability based metrics. To everybody who supported our Indiegogo campaign that made the Good Card Co. a reality, thank you so much. Now, when it comes to further developing the Good Card Co., a friend of mine, Akil, presented me with the concept of the metaphorical business-based bowling ball. Now, stick with me here. The idea is that your customers can only carry so much information around with them about your business. So how do you distill down your message? For example, BMW, the ultimate driving machine. We all know it and we all get it. So we've been working really hard to distill down our message. And what we came up with is that at Sustainable Joe's Good Card Co, our cards make you laugh, feel special and do good. I would love to know what you think of that tagline. I would also like to challenge you to distill down what your entity, your business, your endeavor, your project is really up to. And think of it like a bowling ball. Your customers can only carry around so much. Make your message count. Now today's episode, I'm really excited to release because it's part two of our Hydra Store episode. It's with the CEO, Mr. Curtis Van Wallingham. Hydra Store operates in the space of compressed air energy storage which I believe will play a vital role in all global utility grids moving forward. Because traditionally, a big problem in the space of renewable energy is in fact storage. The sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing, yet we all want to consume energy all the time. If you've yet to listen to part one of our HydroStore episode, this is a great place to start before listening to today's episode. Ultimately, Kurt shares so much value in this podcast when it comes to building your own business, and he closes by answering five questions from the audience as this podcast was recorded live at CoPower's downtown Toronto headquarters. A quick shout out to CoPower. They are an investment company that issues green bonds, but we're not talking about a government bond that pays 1% to 2%. CoPower's five-year green bonds offer 5% annually while helping support the development of clean energy across North America. Think solar, geothermal, LED retrofits, projects that help you fight climate change and that you can feel good about investing in. Learn how to put the planet in your portfolio by visiting copower.me. Lastly, before we get this episode going, I want to say a quick happy birthday to Cindy from Calstone. Calstone was the primary sponsor of our Toronto premiere of our film. I'm excited to announce that our film will be released in the next four weeks as we had our last private screening October the 26th at the Ivy School of Business in London, Ontario. It was great. 
Thank you, Ivy. If you haven't seen the trailer to our film, you can view it on our website and sign up to the mailing list to be notified when the film is released. That's at sustainablejoes.com. Back to Cindy and Calstone for a second. Calstone is a B Corp, and I actually interviewed Cindy to be in our film, and unfortunately, the material got left on the cutting room floor. However, for her birthday, Cindy wrote on her Facebook, tomorrow you will be getting an alert that it is my birthday. And since you are all my friends, I have a favor to ask. In honor of my birthday, please consider doing one thing for the planet that you wouldn't normally do. So to honor Cindy, to thank Cindy, to celebrate her birthday, I would like to pass on Cindy's birthday challenge to you, Joe's Nation. If you post it on social media, please tag us at Sustainable Joe's. I'll be sure to comment. My monologue is now complete. This episode is dedicated to you, Cindy. Happy birthday, my friend. And as always, I want to give a shout out to one of our patrons. And this week, that shout out is going to you, Sophia. Thank you for making this work possible. Without further ado, this is part two of my conversation with the CEO of Hydrostore, Mr. Curtis Van Wallingham. I hope you enjoy. From Sustainable Joe's, this is 2084, a podcast about designing tomorrow, creating a sustainable future for all, told by the people building it today. I love stories like yours, because suffice to say, you sound pretty excited about what you do. Is that fair? I'm very excited. Yeah, it's a, you know, my first time being in a startup kind of starting something it's it's exciting it's a thrill uh and when you're doing something for a real purpose a higher purpose that you really believe in it it makes all the difference and you got a great team to work with it's a lot of fun and that's what i want you to expand on what is that higher purpose i mean you left the comfy like corporate job you're flying around the world i mean there's you know benefits you know positives and negatives but what is your why so for me when my older brother had his first kids. I remember, you know, when they first started talking and I was kind of getting to know them. And I, I remember being young at that age, talking to my grandfather about World War II and he was in there and helped uh, the Allies come to victory. And him telling me with such pride and everything else. And I just, I remember seeing those kids, they weren't mine, but my niece and nephew and just saying, you know what, what's, what's our higher calling? I'm like, I looked up to my grandfather so much for what he did. And so I just said, you know what, I think climate change really is our generation's World War II, you know, and we've got to find a way of solving this. And I want to be uh, one of the solutions and not someone that just kind of wrote it out and, and was sitting on the sidelines. So, so that's why, and it was a huge risk. I, you know, I, we didn't have gobs of money and I left a very high paying job and we went three, four years with no salary, put, the majority of our savings in and recruited friends and family to put money in. And so you go to family dinners, you go to Christmas, whatever, right? and everyone's like, so how's that investment coming? Um, you know, it's, it's awkward. But then when you get hit with the, you know, the body blows of, of stuff that goes wrong in startups, it's pretty tough to walk away when you've got so many people relying on you and so many people that trusted you. You feel like you've got to go through every possible corner undig every rock and just look for solutions and many times we did that and we thought we were done and we found a creative way out and, and skated through and seven eight years later we're still standing well and, and you have billions of dollars in the pipeline 
Um, if we can take a step back, we're going to go a little over time here, everybody. Because um, is everybody okay with that? Because I'm loving this. Cool. What was one of the biggest body blows? Oh, we there were many. Or, or a one, couple. One though that's <laughs> dramatic. I mean, we we were bringing this football field size structure out uh, in Lake Ontario. About so our first plant was on Toronto Island, backs up the Toronto Island, and we're bringing up football field size structure filled with rock. I don't know how many hundreds of tons it weighed. And the boats that were, or the tug that was bringing out, um, a big kind of swell hit and snapped some cables that some engineers basically missed sizing and missed this risk. And the whole thing went down and basically blew up. I think it was three, four million dollars that was spent on that structure. We send the ROVs down and this thing's just a total disaster. It looks like a tornado went through a trailer park. Like there's just cables <laughs> and pipes and things upside down. It was just like totally unrecoverable. And we were out of money. We were, I was funding the company on credit cards at that point to get us over the finish line of building this first plant. And so now we're like, okay, now we got a liability sitting out there. We're out 4 million bucks and how do we store air when we got no structure down there? Um, and it just so happened that there was a clause and in an insurance thing that triggered and we ended up getting an insurance company to step in and pay us to rebuild it all uh, under an insurance policy that we didn't actually even know we had. It was uh, something a broke. Wow. So like, like that's one of maybe probably five or 10 issues like that we've had over the years. So uh, it's been a wild ride. Wow. Um, before I get to my, my last question, you're sitting at your family's dinner table. You've had, you have family invested, you're invested, you've had outside investment, but your, your brother-in-law, your dad is looking over, you know, how is that investment coming? Your wife, I mean, you got a wedding ring on. Like, honey, when are we gonna start making money? Like, I mean, no, like those, those, those are, those are. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give entrepreneurs who are experiencing that right now? Like, what do you say? You know, I realized early on, once I was making good money in the consulting days and everything, once you're making a hundred grand a year, frankly, you have everything you need. And now it's just what sort of frivolous crap am I going to buy? And yeah, there's not a ton of satisfaction there. And so I think working on stuff you love is far more important and you actually don't really need that much money to kind of get by. And so, um, you know, my grandfather, most of my family's in construction or carpentry sort of work and, and they love what they do. And so if you, you know, my grandpa always said, if you love what you do, it's not work. And that's kind of how I view it is I, I view I'm doing something for a different purpose. The money's not really there. I had lots of money before and it, Frankly, it doesn't really get you much. And so it's more important to like what you're doing and like who you're doing it with. Um, obviously, you got to keep a roof over your head and all that sort of stuff. But uh, chasing hundreds of minutes, I mean, I don't even know what you'd do with that money if you had it. So I love how excited you are. When you look at the future of HydroStore, what are you most excited about? You know, I think of the day when we have, we, we own parts or all of plants scattered all around the world. These all last for 50, 100 years. And, you know, if we can be building one or two a year in all different places, just to think of the magnitude. Like, if we build one or two projects next year, we'll have pretty much eclipsed all the battery installations in the world. 
Like our systems are very, very, very large. Um, and so I just think of the impact that we can have on the grid and how meaningful it is. Um, so just excited to see that growth. And because I, I believe the more we succeed, the more the grid can go renewable, which means we can decarbon. Um, and I think that matters for our kids and our kids' kids and all that sort of stuff. You already heard the last question in the previous interview. Based off of all of your knowledge, what question do I w you wish I would ask you, and what's the answer? You know what? I should have been a little bit smarter and, and thought of that, huh? Um, <laughs> maybe what's uh, what's getting in the way of storage today? Um, sure. And so, what's getting in the way of this transition yeah, in general? And and really, so. Uh, for storage, we require, so you've got to change the minds of utilities and have them embrace your technology, but then you've got regulations. So when we are building a plant up in Goderich, about three hours here, that's under construction now, they've never stored air underground in Canada. And so Ministry of Natural Resources, so what's the permit we need? They're like, what do you want to do? Store air underground. We never heard of that before. <laughs> well, are we allowed to do it? No, you need a permit. Well, what's your permit? We don't know. And so they've had to, we've had to work with them to build permits. And then you go like Alberta's got this, what they call a capacity auction coming up. Well, can storage apply for that? They don't know. It's, if you look at capacity contracts, they can call you and you, you have to be there forever. Like, cause it was meant for gas plants. And we're saying, well, we need to recharge at some point. So does that mean we just can't solve this problem for you, even though we're way cheaper and better and don't have carbon? Well, I guess we've got to change those rules. Uh, other places have rules that only wires can act as transmission. And we say, well, we can suck power across at night when everyone's sleeping, get on the other side of the bottleneck, and then relieve it there so you don't even need to build another transmission. Well, we got rules that only wires can be used as transmission. So they've got all these old regulations. And so we have to, in every jurisdiction, almost hire lobbyists and get involved with regulators to change the rules to adapt. So it's a... You know, it's a, it's a new technology in a new industry that's got to change regulations and get embraced by the utilities. It's, uh, it takes an awful long time and effort. I'm stealing one more. What can everybody do in this room to help you? You know, I don't, uh, you know, we sell to ut major utilities. We sell 50 to 150 to $200 million plants. Uh, and so we, we sell to big corporations and institutions. But I think that what really matters at the grassroots is that people care about the quality of their air. I mean, when I grew up in the Northwest, surrounded in forests and lakes and, and logging, um, and then I moved down here and it was when smog days were happening. I'm like, this is ridiculous. How do people live in this place? Um, and so I, I just think as long as we lean on the public officials to say we want clean air and we care about the environment, they're then forced to look at solutions for it and it, it kind of helps us with the regulatory stuff and all that. Um, to just keep being, being loud and, and know that uh, I think you're on the right side of history and, and keep raising your hand and pushing the, the politicians to make the changes that, that we all need. Because without them, there's always someone out chasing a, a cheap, easy buck at other people's expense. And, and I think that's where governments can step in. Hey, Joe's Nation. I want to take a minute to acknowledge a couple of our supporters, so please listen up. This episode of Sustainable Joe's 2084 is brought to you in part thanks to the support of Bullfrog Power, Buns, and Steam Whistle. Buns hosts our podcast for free. Steam Whistle gives us their delicious premium pilsner to sip on as we, as we converse. 
and Bullfrog not only financially supported our live events, but also powered them. And all of these entities push our content all over the internet. So let's get to the technical copy. First, to Bullfrog Power Sustainable Joe's 2084 live event recordings are Bullfrog powered with 100% green electricity. You too can choose green electricity for your home and support the development of community-based renewable energy projects across Canada at bullfrogpower.com. For those of you who don't know, Buns is the app for decluttering your life and finding stuff you love. Recently, Eli traded a bike light he no longer needed for three apples on Buns, quite literally a sweet trade. In the past, I also traded a six pack for two tickets to the Green Living Show. Anyways, you too can try trading today by visiting buns.com or get the app on your phone at the end of the day, Buns, for trading. A big thank you also goes out to Steam Whistle, Canada's premium pilsner for their 100% renewably powered brewery to their grain bottles, which can be reused up to three times more than a standard ground bottle, quote end quote. Steam Whistle is proud to support Sustainable Joes as we work to create a sustainable tomorrow together. Lastly, this podcast is publicly funded. It takes hours to create, so thank you to all of our monthly Patreon campaign supporters. If you have the capacity to contribute or you would like your business to be highlighted, please send us a message at sustainablejoes.com. That's Joes with an S because whether you are Joseph or Joanne, together we are a group of Joes. Now back to the show. Kurt, thank you so much. I very much enjoyed this, my friend. All right, thank you, sir. Miss Monica Patel, the first question is yours. I was really light and easy on you. Come on. <laughs> I already told you what the question was. Oh! <laughs> I forgot that. I'm still going to ask it. So my question for you is your, your product is obviously sustainable or responsible. Um, what have you done to look into making the rest of implementing your product more responsible? So mining or whatever it else you're, it is you're doing to get your product in the ground. How do you kind of more make that supply chain a lot more responsible? Right. And so um, we've recently got an investment from a group that's one of these B Corps that, that now makes us go through a survey about our general sustainability as a company. and. This is an aspect, you know, we've been fighting to keep the lights on and keep ourselves above water. We, uh, to be totally frank, have not looked into that sort of thing. Uh, when I look at how our system's built, we, we buy big pieces of machinery from big equipment suppliers. And I don't know that we would have the power to change their behavior, and I don't frankly know how sustainable their manufacturing practices are. Uh, so that's about a third of the cost. There's then a... Th Another third that is um, kind of buildings and concrete and general contractors that I think, uh, you know, we always do unions with high labor standards and we don't uh, put any chemicals or, to give you an example, to store some heat, we had options to use all these thermal fluids and kind of nasty chemicals that would do stuff and we went to pressurized water uh, instead just because of the environmental side of it. And then how we mine, I mean, we, we use good old fashioned mining excavation like dig down and dig out dirt and and rock and then go dump that rock somewhere that is um 
you know, compliant or where the, the local jurisdiction wants. So we're looking at a pretty large project downtown Toronto. Um, and we've, so we've already started to engage with the Leslie Street Spit and said, hey, if we come out with football fields worth of uh, clean rock, um, can we help you build that uh, bird sanctuary a little bit bigger, maybe uh, name a point after us. And so, you know, that's kind of where we're at. Uh, I think there's a lot more we probably could do and should do, uh, but just being straight honest with you, that's, that's kind of where we're at. Hey, uh, my name's Thomas. I'm a sustainability and energy engineer for WSP. Uh, so as Monica alluded to earlier, uh, a lot of sustainable change is driven from consumer asking for that change and industry will respond to that. Uh, you mentioned that your technology is mainly used on you know, large grid, large power plants that take advantage of this technology. And my question is, you know, is there potential for this technology to be used for you know, local buildings, local consumers that you know, would like to, for example, respond to demand response, uh, store power on their sites and take advantage of energy that way? Right. Before I directly answer your question, the, a lot of utilities that we speak to and big companies, the Googles and Microsofts of the world, they're coming to us and saying, hey, we have a backup diesel gen set at this data center, but our consumers are forcing us to go 100% renewable, so we have to replace that. Can you guys help us out? And so I, I do think consumer influence really does matter. There's cities that are claiming that they're going to go 100% renewable and so that trickles down and, and drives demand for our product and all that stuff. So it does matter even though we don't sell direct to consumers. Uh, we are looking at a solution that is uh, meant for smaller scale, maybe down to one megawatt, which is still a lot more than a home, but um, maybe a neighborhood. Uh, we're not quite there. We filed some patents on it. We're not, uh, we're not quite ready to offer it in the market. Um, but uh, to give you a general sense, we're looking at just uh, strapping up a, a, a drilling rig and, and going down and poking various holes, kind of like geothermal, uh, but then just sending air down there uh, instead of um, circulating fluids to get the heat. Uh, we're not sure we can quite do it cost effectively that yet, but we're investigating it. So that would be our smaller product that we'd like to bring out. Frankly, it'd be a lot easier for us in that segment because to go from building a couple plants to then saying $100 million plant is, uh, is a big leap. We'd love to have those smaller ones that we could work on. And frankly, in the commercial and industrial space, that demand response, demand charge management is where the great business case is. Unfortunately, our system's just too big for it right now. So. Uh, we're, we're motivated to find a solution there, it's just uh, we haven't got it yet. Hi, my name is Elena, founder of One Species, and uh, I was just wondering if you guys have partnerships or collaborations or you work with pre-existing like deep ground infrastructure, so like mines or like even geothermal even though it doesn't go quite as deep. Um, and if you do, then is there opportunity to provide power for mines? And, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, we love it if there's existing infrastructure. Uh, and so to give you a sense, we're uh, locking up a number of sites across Australia right now where we will take an old mine site and convert it. And so uh, often these old coal mining, even open, open pit coal mines would have had a generating station as the coal resource kind of was dug out. They shut down the plant, but it's still got the grid interconnection tie and a gigantic hole in the ground. And so we can use that hole in the ground to uh, start 
digging, we, we have to go half as deep now, which saves us a lot. And then underground mines, we can just pump the water out if it's not too toxic uh, and then seal it and use that itself. So we do look for those. The issue with storage is, is a lot of the business case has to do with, I need it exactly here. And so the business case is very site specific where you are on the grid. Is it a high voltage line where two connect on the other side of a bottleneck? And so I need storage right there. And so often those aren't in the right spot. Uh, but we do have databases forming of where those all are. And because on our base design, that's about $100 million, probably 40, 45 million is digging a giant hole. And uh, if one exists, I would uh, love to save that money and use it but uh, it's just not always where you need it. To give you an example, where do you need storage in Ontario? Uh, you need it in the downtown GT, like within, like south of the 401, west of the DVP, east of the uh, 427. Almost anywhere else, it doesn't really matter. And so there, there's obviously no pre-existing infrastructure here, so we'd have to do our own, but uh, we do look for those. I love how naturally you talk yeah. about, you know, like, oh, our, our baseline product, hundred million dollars <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you had a question about partnerships too so we do partner with big engineering companies we're partnering with a mining company now um, and we've looked at mines where like say valet or some big company was building a mine um, that we could build it and help them power it it's just um, their life of their mine versus our system and how they do it it's uh we haven't found a fit there necessarily even though intuitively you'd think it would match but it tends to be once they already have the hole in the ground they're kind of on their way out uh, and so it wouldn't make sense to install a 50-year asset when they're pretty much done um and, and the because, question was, even with the cost effectiveness of not having to dig, that yeah. was my best female voice. <laughs> uh, the, so the issue there is they would have had to install something to get them power to start digging in the first place. And so now you're, you're not competing with uh, installation of it. You're just causing with keep running what you already had. And so if, if it was fresh, clean slate and they said, we got to bring in something, yours is better, but there's currently no hole in the ground. The hole in the ground's only there once they've already invested in something else, and now you're competing with something that's already installed. And so there's a, a few of those kind of catch-22s that happen. Mr. Summerhays, if I remember your name correctly. Jeez, <laughs> My name's Scott Summerhays. I'm a freelance videographer. Um, kind of picking off, piggybacking off of that question, actually. Um, so you were talking a little bit about the viability of the product and how there are, are certain costs you need to do and certain, uh, certain things you need to do to get the permits to dig these big holes. Doesn't that kind of make it difficult for you to compete with, for instance, Elon Musk's Gigafactory? He can go and build a Gigafactory and build these batteries because those permits already exist. You've got to compete against those things. And then also on a global scale, how do you compete against a factory building so many batteries when you say we've got something else that's better but we need we need you to let us dig holes underground and we need you to let us put it in your waters and that kind of stuff yeah and that's uh that's absolutely uh uh the biggest drawback of our solution is we we say we'll need uh you know a year plus to get permits then it's going to take a year plus to build so you're looking at two three years before you've got an operating system but the alternative is you can pay 
400 million for batteries and another 400 million in seven years and another 400 million in seven years and another 400 million in seven years. Uh, or you could just do it once and do it in a more environment. And every one of those batteries, by the way, then just goes to the landfill because there's no real lithium ion recycling out there. And so that's the value proposition is if, if you can plan ahead uh, and you need enough of it, it's a far more cost-effective solution using ours, but appreciate that sometimes you got to go quick and sometimes price doesn't matter and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so we're, the good thing is, is like the Gigafactory, it produces X amount of batteries. They have to deploy those. If they all of a sudden start manufacturing at 70% capacity, their costs just spike. So they have, they have to keep their manufacturing plant humming. For us, we could build 10 plants one year, none for two years. 10 because it's all project specific. So we're, we're out developing it and we hold the patents to do it, but we hire a construction company to do it at the time and we order the equipment that's used for oil and gas at the time we need it. So we're very nimble and we can go lots of projects, very few, whereas they have to deploy out all that. So yeah, there's times where it's better for them and, and I think in pockets uh, where it's to our advantage. But uh, by no means are we going to get 100% market share. There's clearly a role for both. Hi, my name is Jonathan Frank. I'm the Director of Projects with CoPower. Uh, you've talked a lot about the role of utilities. Depending on who you talk to in the industry, the utility is either the barrier or the enabler to this renewable energy transition. And I'm wondering how you navigate that and also perhaps what's the most interesting or unique thing you've heard from a utility executive? Sure. So um, absolutely some are progressive and some are just fighting things tooth and nail. Uh, sometimes the regulators force them to do it anyway, uh, but then they're just grudgingly kind of going along. Um, we tend to focus on the more proactive utilities or the ones that have already gotten a mandate shoved down their throat um, and just not we don't have the resources to fight the people that don't want our solution there. Uh, so we just kind of go for the first couple meetings. You can kind of tell pretty early if they're progressive and are looking for solutions or are just will never do it and are just there for a bit of information. And so we just direct our resources, uh, to be totally frank. But we are seeing more and more adopting it because they're, they're starting to see that, hey, geez, wind and solar really is the most cost effective. But to do that, I need some storage. How do I do that cost effectively too? Um, I had a big US utility up uh, this week taking a tour of our plant. And Can we know the utility? Uh, no, I probably shouldn't say that. Um, Shucks. <laughs> a, a top 10 US utility. And they basically said in this certain regions, they're just like, we curtail the renewables. So we just, we'll install more wind and solar than we need. And anytime we've got more production, we just ground it, turn it off. And they go, that's more cost effective for us. I said, that's, so that's your long-term strategy? They go, no, we're only at 10% renewables right now. Once it starts getting to 15 and 20, we can't do that strategy anymore. We will need storage. That's why we're up looking at your plant, but don't look at us to buy for five or 10 years, but we're just gathering information for down the road. Um, an interesting thing that uh, just in California a week or so ago, uh, one of the utilities there said, you know, we're talking pros and cons of us versus batteries, and, and one of them is uh, round-trip efficiency. So if you, what does it take to fully charge and then discharge? How much do you get back? So a battery will give you a headline number of, say, 85%, 90%. Um, I had 
one of the utilities come to me and said, we've tested these things and we're in a hot climate and these things can't go above 22 degrees Celsius. Um, and so you have to keep them in air conditions. So it's football fields of air conditioned stuff with batteries churning off heat. And he's like, if we add the cost of our air conditioning, they're getting like 40% efficiency. Um, and so it really matters how you measure that. Uh, but the, the, the interesting point I was gonna mention was this one utility said, your guys number is about 65%. And that's lower than 85%. But he goes, but we're in California and our prices go negative whenever the sun's up. So um, you guys actually get paid to charge. So you're, the lower efficiency you have, the more money you should make, um, which is a, a pretty weird way of looking at things. I'm going to take actually the last question because something it dawned in my mind. With your marine-based solutions and the proximity to a coast, do you take into consideration the projection of sea level rise? Uh, no, we do not. Uh, we, um, Does that concern you? Uh, so sea level rise absolutely concerns me. It just makes our system better. So it, it, it actually would work better because as you get higher water means we get more, more pressure, pressure, which means your air is under more pressure so you can do more work with it. Um, but, you know, sea level, like I, my folks are snowbirds down in, in Florida and you'll see what's happening in Miami and stuff. It's like they're, Miami's already underwater and they're pumping the streets out every time the, the, the swells come in. It's, tides. it's just unbelievable there that you've got an entire city that's basically underwater and it, this is just starting. So uh, fast forward 10, 15 years, there's going to be an awful lot of these cities that are like Denmark that are just going to have to keep pumping, pumping, pumping. Kurt, thank you so much, eh? Thank you. Thanks to everyone. That was part two of my conversation with Curtis Van Wallingham, the CEO of Hydrostore. You can find out more about Hydrostore at hydrostore.ca. This episode was recorded by Koji Nagata and yours truly. I also took care of the editing and music was provided by Johnny of Wolf Saga. You can subscribe to 2084 on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do us a favor and leave us a review while you're there. And lastly, big thank you to everyone who supports this project. Our patrons are the best. If you have the capacity, our project is publicly funded. You can find out how you can join Joe's Nation as a patron at sustainablejoes.com. As always, thank you for listening. And we will be live with a new episode next week. For now, I leave you with the track from Wolf Saga.
I'm uh-huh. 